2 Timothy chapter 3. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who entered into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Jonas and Jambres's folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Amen. Today we interrupt our regularly scheduled study of Luke's Gospel just long enough to consider a short sermon series intended to explain our Reformed Presbyterian covenant of communicant membership. Now let me say a few words at the beginning as to why we're diverting this direction and why you ought to be encouraged by it. We're diverting this direction because, as of about a month ago, we are no longer merely a preaching station of this Midwest Presbytery. That court of the Lord's house has now reposed a special trust and confidence in you, confidence in us together under Christ, by constituting us a mission church. As a new mission church, we aspire in Jesus Christ to become, in time, a fully organized congregation. Moving this direction requires both the growing of local leadership and the growing together of our whole membership, a clearly defined membership, 
possessed of common life commitments and a common testimony. Members who, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are led to make solemn promises in the sight of God and men, and then by grace to keep them, to keep those promises. After all, we can hardly be called the covenant people of God if we don't covenant, can we? So we need to do two things as we move toward full organization. At one level, we need to train and develop a local session of elders, men who will eventually be elected, examined, ordained, and installed in the name of Jesus Christ for the purpose of keeping watch over our souls. But we also need to train and develop the whole local body of believers. In the strength God supplies, we need to shape and sharpen our corporate commitment to function together biblically, lovingly, helpfully, as the glorious body of Christ. That's what we aim to be. Not one day a week, but seven days a week. This covenant living within a covenant relationship is the work of everyone here in this room. We undertake a commitment to grow together in the Lord. Because however healthy the infant may be, or the infant church, our objective isn't merely to maintain the status quo, it's to, be, to grow up to full maturity for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ here in greater San Antonio. So over these next seven weeks, we'll see what communicant membership in this Reformed and Presbyterian branch of the Lord's Church is all about. The seven queries or bulletins to which prospective members are asked to respond appear in your bulletin insert. But let me back up to get a running start on this. Let me begin by asking, why is communicant membership in the church even an issue to anyone? What's so special, what's so important about being a card-carrying communicant member? Why not just show up at church on Sunday mornings for as long as we feel good about it, as long as we find it personally helpful, and then, once the thrill is gone, once something else comes along that feels like a better use of our time, why not just move on to it? Golf, maybe. Or brunch at the club. Or catching up on laundry. Why not? The biblical answer takes us beyond anything our independent 21st century Western mindset is able to comprehend. I'd venture to say that American culture doesn't mind churches so much. The more churches, the merrier, as far as they're concerned. But their question is, why commit yourself to membership in one particular church? Our natural aversion to rock-steady, hard commitment is the reason I have to ask the question in the first place, because whether it's the exclusive commitment of marriage or of church membership, or that of signing a mortgage, or of telling the truth, or of keeping your promises, our culture can be dependent on not taking a firm stand. Not to keep its covenants, if keeping them becomes personally inconvenient. Our secular society instead aims to put you, the sovereign individual, at the self-indulgent center of every well-spread buffet of personal choices it can possibly offer you. 
no holds barred. So if you happen to be hungry, well, where do you want to eat? Pick some place. Wherever it is you decide to go, they're all going to offer you a menu, a menu of more choices to make. Pick from the menu whatever you like. Or you can just go to Golden Corral and have it all. Get the buffet. Pick whatever appeals to you and leave the rest. Or if you don't go out, if you decide just to stay in and lounge around, you have at your disposal hundreds of cable TV channels, thousands of internet websites, so pick one. If it's Social activity you're looking for, San Antonio's a pretty big place. There are shopping malls that offer you scores of fascinating specialty shops. Schools of every description for learning new skills, making new friends. And on top of everything else, there's this bewildering array of churches and doctrines from which to choose. And so here we are, adrift in this universe of daily decisions, large and small. We're made to feel we are somehow in charge of things, that any choice I make is okay, just as long as I'm the one making it. That what matters ultimately is whatever makes me happy for as long as I'm happy there. And then when I'm no longer happy, I can just Move on. I can take my business somewhere else. That's our secular culture speaking. But the throne of Jesus Christ, God the Son, stands outside culture, stands outside creation. And Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So if you have an interest by faith in the inheritance promised in the gospel, then the church for whom Christ Jesus at Calvary shed his atoning blood is for you. Not you as one orange among many oranges thrown together in a bag of oranges. Not you as one nut among the many in a bag of mixed nuts. We're not nuts. In the church, abiding in Christ, you and I find ourselves organically connected Not like oranges or nuts, but like two little twigs growing organically alongside each other on one little branch, a branch that draws its whole life and nourishment from Christ Jesus, the vine. The life we now enjoy, we enjoy in Him. And it comes from Him. It remains in Him. And when we bear fruit, it's only because of Him. By the gospel, he woos and wins and welcomes us who once were dead. He grafts us into the vine by faith. 
He grafts us in not to glorify and enjoy him merely as individuals for a season of fair weather, but to glorify and enjoy him together with others of like precious faith for as long as life lasts. In the church, you should find others of like mind and like commitment because together we're serving one glorious king, God the Son, incarnate, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He came in the flesh 2,000 years ago. Two continents distant from where we sit today. In other words, the historical facts of the New Testament, the facts concerning our redemption by grace through faith, took place long ago and far away. So if they took place long ago and far away, then how are we to know them? How do we participate in them? It is ours today in Texas to know these things, to be assured of them, to find real peace and comfort in them, only by means of God's Word written, God's Word preserved, God's Word translated, God's Word read and studied and preached and heard. The spacious heavens above declare wondrous things about the glory of the God who made and sustains this amazing universe. Every day, every night they do. But they cannot tell us that the one who made and daily sustains the universe also had it in his heart, had it in his power to redeem and restore us in Christ to something even more glorious. More glorious than this universe. More glorious than the spacious skies above us. Something that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. The spacious heavens above can't tell us these things. They can't tell us he had it in mind from all eternity to reconcile and elect people to himself by the cross for a sweet, unbroken fellowship transcending the narrow limits of these 70 or 80 years. But for the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, knowing God would be strictly a matter of groping and guesswork. It would be my conjecture over against your conjecture. My opinion over against your opinion. The Apostle Paul writes his second and final letter to Timothy from a providence that is very dark and deep. It's the year 64 AD, probably late summer or early fall. He's in Rome. He's in prison for the gospel. Again, Caesar Nero, to whose judgment seat Paul first appealed a few years earlier when he was arrested in Jerusalem, then held in Caesarea, Nero is still disgracing the empire. Nero seems, in fact, to be intent on making public disgrace an art form. The first century Roman historian Tacitus suggests Nero fancied himself as much a rock star as an emperor. 
At age 17, the callow coddled Nero began his 14-year reign as emperor, and it was a complete disaster of juvenile misrule. He loved the stage, loved the theater, and on the stage delighted to engage publicly and at public expense in the extremity of every vice you can imagine. In July 64 AD, Nero was on stage at Antium, singing of the sack of Troy, while from a safe distance of 40 miles to the north, the city of Rome was on fire, allegedly on his orders. Read the annals of Tacitus, book 15, for the news stories of the day. Read it and weep that such men as Nero should govern empires. Well, at his first appeal a few years earlier, Paul had apparently been exonerated. He'd been released to carry on his gospel mission a few more years, and there was at least a fourth missionary journey that included the island of Crete, maybe even a trip to Spain. Such is our dependence on the book of Acts that once it ends, we're left only with a few hints, a few conjectures as to the later gospel timeline. But now... Once again, he's been arrested. Once again, he's at Rome. But this time it's not under a comfortable house arrest like the first time. Like the one we found him in a few years earlier in Acts chapter 28. This time he's in a real prison and he's awaiting execution. Because Nero's pinning the blame for the fire on this swelling community of Christians in Rome. Do leaders have a moral impact on those they lead? Do they set the cultural climate for others? Let me suggest to you that as he writes this last of his New Testament letters, Paul understands that the last days of which he writes, those last days when difficult times will come, those last days are already here. He's writing in these first nine verses the moral resume of Nero and of every uncritical groupie of Nero whose God is his own appetite. These verses describe the average product of state-run education, life with the secular state assuming God's place, life following the downward path along the easiest course. That's the life he's describing, but it's not to be Timothy's life, and it's not to be yours. You followed something much harder to follow, something much higher to attain. By grace, he says, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. The first query of communicant membership in the Reformed Presbyterian Church aims to settle the first and foundational matter 
of authority. Authority is always the first matter to settle in any major undertaking, isn't it? Our U.S. Constitution opens with words purporting, wrongly, but purporting nevertheless to establish the final authority in matters of how the nation is to be governed. It's we the people who ordain and establish this Constitution. So it says. But we the people have changed considerably over the 231 years that have passed since it was first written, haven't we? We the people have so far amended this Constitution 27 times. For all the good that may be said of our country's foundational legal document, if one begins without Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to whom has actually been given all authority in heaven and on earth, if it starts without him, then it starts out fundamentally flawed. And fallen citizens who elect fallen representatives and fallen senators to repair it along the way aren't going to get the job done. Unlike our Constitution, when the Bible opens, it opens with the truth about authority in all matters of faith and life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What he created, of course, he also has the right to own, the right to govern, the right to dispose of as he sees fit. They're his. The earth and all that is in them. We're his. And that he's great, that he's glorious, even the spacious heavens above, the sun, the moon, the stars can all joyously confirm. But the living and true God who created us didn't then disappear and leave us to grope for the truth about the rest of the story. Didn't leave us wondering whether in fact there might even be a story. For something over 16 centuries, probably much longer depending on how early one places the ancient book of Job in the history of Revelation, in the voices and writings of dozens of men, representing multiple successive cultures on three continents, using three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. The spacious heavens above declare His glory. These men, moved by the Holy Spirit, together with one voice, declare His redeeming Grace. Have you ever considered how seldom it is that two news networks covering the very same event on the very same day come up with the same story? Today in the United States we have one federal administration covered covered by various media outlets. And the interpretations of what's actually going on in the world are as numerous as the outlets covering them. But let's have a look at these prophets, priests, kings, poets, and apostles who over the course of 16 centuries spoke by the Holy Ghost. Job may have been the earliest to write his story, and he speaks of Christ. 
By the Spirit of Christ, he speaks of his own coming resurrection on the last great day. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he'll take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, he says, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. You find that in Job's 19th chapter. John is the latest to die of the apostles, and with the unfolding rose of revelation now at last at full bloom, he speaks in his closing words of the same Christ, the same Redeemer. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. All I'm telling you is that from the beginning clear through to the present day, God hasn't left himself without explicit witness to his plan to redeem and restore this creation from its fallenness and corruption. Many voices through the centuries have joined in concert under the direction of one maestro, one Holy Spirit. Together they've produced these sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Without exception, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are profitable for teaching. Other things may be profitable or not. Without exception, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are profitable for reproof. Other things lack that final authority to discipline. Without exception, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are profitable for correction. Any other straight edge that we might use to correct our mistakes, sooner or later, we're going to discover isn't so straight after all. Without exception, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are profitable for training in righteousness. Any other guide we might settle on is nothing better than human guesswork and opinion. And why is this so? What makes the difference? Well, a measure of a book is its author. I once published a book, and whatever strengths it may have, it also has its share of flaws. It has its share of flaws because I'm the one who wrote it. I may have overstated some things. I may have understated others. Some important things I probably left out altogether. Didn't mean to. But I'm human. I err. God's book, too, is a measure of its author. The Bible gives us one sustained glorious, infallible story unfolding from Genesis through the Revelation. It gives us many little stories of many little people in many little nations, all serving one great God and Savior who holds all their stories through all the centuries in perfect balance, perfect harmony, not to impress us, not to sell books, 
We have these scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, the very word of God to be our only infallible rule for faith and living. We have them for his glory and our good, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Thanks be to God we have them. Now that we have them, the question to settle is this, do you believe them? And beloved, there's only one way you can give a good, solid answer, one way or the other to that question. With your Bible open and a mind to match, let's start reading.